Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Ministries International. We value the Word of God as an instrument of growth in our lives, using it to mend our ways, align our thinking, and ultimately bring restoration. We trust that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Folks, I want to uh, share something with you that the Lord's brought to, to light in my heart over the past couple of weeks. It's very much in line with what the Lord has been sharing with us as a spiritual family over the last few weeks, what Pastor Andreas has been sharing um, and, and within the season. But there's a narrative I want to call for you today, and I want to actually spend most of the time this evening carving the narrative because... I don't know, for me, somehow context um, paints a picture. Sometimes when we zoom out from the point we're trying to make and we get a, a bigger context of things, the message that comes through is, is amplified and it gives us a deeper understanding of things. So the title of my message today and what I want to share with you is no ifs, ands, or buts. No ifs, ands, or buts. So where I'm going to start off is I'm going to, we, we're going to be journeying through much of the life of the nation of Israel, um, basically in the promised land is where we're going to be focusing most of our attention. But as you know, God brought his people out of the captivity in Egypt with Moses. He took them into the desert. And in the desert, there was a time where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And Exodus 20 lists those Ten Commandments uh, for us. But I want to read this evening, starting just with the, the very first commandment. And everything that I'm going to share with you today revolves around this first and great commandment. That's what Jesus called it, the first and the great commandment. And it says this, Exodus 20, verses 3 to 6, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image in the likeness of anything in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing, showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's, so it's very clear from this commandment, God says, you shall love have no other gods before me. It's, it, it's clear here. He doesn't want to just be number one. He wants to be the only one in all of our hearts and in all of our lives. And you see, it's quite interesting. He talks about their visiting on, on generations and generations after. There is a reality and there is a truth that we need to acknowledge and embrace, and that is that the influences of what you and I worship will naturally be replicated in our offspring. Whatever it is that we worship or whatever influences we allow in our lives, those will shape who we are and who we are will be imparted to our offspring, to our sons and daughters that come after us, which is why God says it's going to go from generation to generation. Uh, there's a there's a school of of uh, biological science these days, which is called epigenetics. And epigenetics is not, uh, you know, human genetics in terms of DNA and those sorts of things. Epigenetics deals with, if you like, subconscious traits or propensities to follow a, a certain a certain direction. So certain people, based on the on 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 what their parents did, 
will have a greater propensity to go down a certain road than another. I don't really want to talk too much about that. It's just an interesting uh, you know, field of study in relation to what I'm trying to share with you. But when I look at that commandment and when you know Jesus talks about it from the New Testament again and again, people say to him, what do I have to do to be saved? He says, you know, love, you know what the commandments are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's where we're going to end today, by the way. And it's just this this idea of our hearts being wholly devoted to God, to worshiping God. And and what that means is if we're going to be wholly devoted to him, it has to be free from other forms of worship, other forms of influence that so easily want to set in. And when I read the Bible, and I'm sure as you have as well, you've noticed that there seems to be a pull throughout the Bible, but specifically when we read the Old Testament towards the worship of other gods. And it's like the enemy knows that if he can get God's people to compromise on this first commandment, all the others will become meaningless. This is the first and the great commandment. And if any other affections kind of enter in, any other avenues are begin to be explored by God's people, we just see the whole fabric of society we see, be crumbling. We see God's blessing being withheld. We see protection being withheld. And uh, just it all kinds of begins to kind of begins to fall apart. So here's the narrative that I'm, I'm wanting to weave from the wilderness where this command was given. Uh, through the conquering of the promised land with with um, uh, Joshua going in and they're taking the promised land. The first time we see the fulfillment or the fullness of the promise uh, associated with the, the, the promises of God that he made to his people. The first time we see those coming to any kind of meaningful fruition was through the reigns of David and Solomon. King David, was, we know, was the man after God's own heart, and he fought and he battled to bring Israel to a place of peace. And then his son Solomon, in the first part of his reign, oversaw a period of peace and prosperity in Israel. And I mean, those beautiful scriptures talk about every man had his own, his own vine and his own fig tree. And uh, if, you've, if you've ever been to Cyprus, you know that that is significant. Everybody in Cyprus who has their own land has their own fig tree, their own vine, and their own lemon tree. It's a sign of a place of rest, of a home. And under, under Solomon's reign, it's actually quoted as saying, everybody had their own vine, their own fig tree. There was peace throughout the land. Blessing and prosperity flowed throughout the people of Israel. But, and there, although things started well or ended up well with Solomon and he got off on a good foot and he rebuilt the temple and God's presence was back in, in Jerusalem and everything was going well, there came a but. And this but is where I'm wanting to sort of pick up the narrative in 1 Kings chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 1 to 8. And it says this, but Kings, but it starts with a but. My mom always taught me never start a sentence with a but. But here we see a but. King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, and the Hittites. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely 
And I, that word is so powerful because we still have people today believing, no, I can get into this relationship and maybe God can save this person through me. My influence is going to be stronger. God's influence in me is going to be stronger. But yet God knows better. He says, surely, not maybe, surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. And it says there, Solomon clung to these in love. Instead of clinging to the Lord, he clung to the desires of his flesh. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. You see, Solomon let other influences in. There were compromises that he made. I don't believe this happened in a day. You know, he didn't have one big wedding and marry 700 women. There was one. And then there was another. And then there was another. Little compromise after little compromise after little compromise. And eventually Solomon ended up with 700 women. Verse 5. For so, so it says there that... Um, his heart was not loyal to God, as, as, as was the heart of his father, David. For Solomon eventually went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's a really key phrase that's going to come up again and again and again. In, when, you, when, you, when you read the story of the kings, first and second kings, again and again, the kings of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow. Not did not follow, but did not fully follow. So in some ways he followed, but he didn't fully follow. There's so many keys in the scripture. The Lord as his father, David. Then Solomon himself built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to these gods. To their gods. So in the midst of God's promised land that he brought in these people into to possess, high places were being established to other influences, places where sacrifices are made and where other gods are and where incense was burnt, acts of worship. You see, Solomon welcomed in what his father spilled blood to purge. He completely undid the good work that God had done. Solomon started well, folks, and this is the sobering reality. Solomon started well, but along the way, things came in, and eventually he ended up setting up altars. Now, what do we have, if we bring this into our modern way of thinking, what I want you to understand is altars represent ways of thinking Places of sacrifice, in other words, where we sacrifice our time, our money, our, our energy. And they, they, they symbolize worship. The incense represents worship. It represents adoration, giving of oneself. But we see that the consequences of all these influences repeat themselves again and again and again throughout the lineage from, the, from him onwards through the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel. Many did evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshipped Baal and they worshipped the gods of the heathen nations. So their hearts were turned aside. 
Now, I want to fast forward a little bit with the story because I wanted to just give you the picture that under Solomon's reign, although it was so completely blessed, he allowed so many things in that there were things established within the kingdom. Not just allowed, but established. These influences, you, you know, the New Testament, we talk about strongholds. And sometimes when we allow influences that are not of God, that are forbidden of God, that may seem good, not necessarily evil, but draw us away from worshiping God and being devoted to him with our whole heart, things can be established. And then this really comes to a head where, under the reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Um, just to give you some, some you know, a, a broader understanding of that. In the midst of the situation of persecution, God sends his prophet Elijah to go and speak to the king of Ahab. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were Elijah's greatest earthly enemies during his lifetime. They were wicked rulers who reigned over the land of Israel. And one day God told Elijah to tell the king that a famine would come to the land of Israel, and it did. So Ahab really hated Elijah, uh, not just because he was against Baal, and he, and he was God's mouthpiece, but because he was the one who brought this message of uh, a famine over the land. Um, during the reign of King Ahab, many followers of God were persecuted for their beliefs, and he allowed Jezebel, his wife, to kill God's prophets. And the situation was really so bad that they had to go into hiding just to survive. And God eventually had enough of the situation and sent Elijah to stop Jezebel and uh, to prevent the slaughtering of his people and of his prophets. And so he sends a messenger through one of the king's servants to him and to say, right, I'm going to stop Jezebel. And uh, basically, long story short, eventually they met on Mount Carmel. They called together all the prophets of Baal and Elijah, Elijah came for, you know, the very first installment of God's Got Talent. And, uh, you know, it was going to be one against the other. And I don't know if you remember it, you know, they, they had the two pits where the sacrifices were going to be made. And uh, they, the, 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 the prophets of Baal all stood around and they, you know, he said, he said, Elijah set the challenge to them. Say, you know, if you pray to your God, if he makes fire come down, then your God is the real God. Otherwise, and then I'll pray to my God. Whoever causes fire to come on the altars is the one who is going to, uh, uh, you know, is the, is the one true God. And so the, the prophets of Baal got to go first. And they prayed and prayed all day and they danced. And then suddenly they started slaughtering each other, making sacrifices, hoping that they could do something, uh, you know, to make the fire come down from heaven. And uh, nothing happened all day long. And so late in the afternoon, Elijah eventually says, right, bring me water. Um, and it's important to note, to, to wet the wood, it's important to note that it hadn't rained in seven years. Water was scarce. And so Elijah is saying, bring this most precious commodity and pour it all over the wood on the sacrifice. And he did it again and again until eventually the whole thing was 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 drenched. The the altar was was you know the wood was flooded, it was completely wet. And then in front of everybody with all eyes on him, Elijah stood in front of the altar and he uttered those famous words, "No, Hanon's bry." And fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifice, it consumed the stones, it consumed everything. And uh, basically then he went and consumed also, you know, th that afternoon all the prophets of Baal were killed. And so we have this narrative of this 
heathen worship that had entered into the land of Israel that God's people were involved in. God sends his prophet and he deals a decisive blow. He's, he shows again that he is the God of Moses who parted the Red Sea. He shows again that I am the one who brought you up out of Israel. I am still miraculous. I am still powerful. I am still God and I still want to be your God. And while this act kind of, you know, stopped the slaughter in Israel, it didn't stop the rot. Unfortunately, these influences remained and, and, and led to the persecution and the captivity of God's people again and again and again. You've got to also understand that under uh, that in these times, the, the, the kingdom was split because uh, after Solomon, there was a splitting of the kingdom and Israel was the one kingdom and Judah with the tribe of Benjamin was the other kingdom. And Israel, um, Jeroboam was their king. They continued to worship um, the Baals and the Astroths and these other gods throughout the lineages, throughout the generations. Judah, however, had a mixed, a mixed bag of tricks. Um, although there were a few ups along the way, when I look through the story of the kings, and if you read one kings and you read two kings, every time a new king comes to power, especially in Judah, they either walked in the ways of the former king and they sinned against the Lord. In other words, they worshipped idols and they allowed for idolatry. Or they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Now, in reading through the text, as I'm as I'm working my way through these chapters, I tend to read quite slowly. I'm not I'm not the kind of guy who gets through a whole lot of chapters in a day. I forget people's names. I forget details. And so putting this narrative together, it really helps me understand better, you know, what's really going on here. But in reading through the narrative from one king to the next, I find that as I'm reading within my heart, something happens as I'm reading the word of God. I'm either sinking into deep disappointment in response to those who did evil. I read this king came to power and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And my heart goes, oh, man, that's tragic. For another, how many years are the people of God going to be subject to this? And there's like a sadness that comes over me because my heart wants to be loyal to God. But then on the flip side, when I hear that there's a king who followed the commands or did right in the sight of the Lord, I want to celebrate and go, yes, yes. Now let's see what happened. Because every time there was a king who did bad in the sight of God, things went bad. But when there was a king that honored God and served the Lord, there's a different narrative that begins to break out. And I want to celebrate the, these, these, um, these victories. But in reading the story, there's something that has caused me to stop and take personal notice. Because God has been putting his finger on something in my own heart as I've been reading this. And I believe that, and this is why I'm sharing it with you, because I believe that it will help you also in navigating your way through what God desires to do in all of our hearts in the time and the season we are in. We are in a season of repentance. We are in a season of awakening, in a season of returning to the Lord. Uh, Isaiah 60, arise, shine, your light has come. There's a, a time of awakening that's taking place. And God, in the same way that God sent his prophets in the Old Testament to call his people back to his heart, I believe God today is releasing a prophetic word. And if you've been listening to Pastor Andreas's messages of late, you'll testify to the same. Calling us back to his heart. And this is what this message is really all about. And this thing that God has been bringing to light in my heart begins, I started taking notice of it with the reign of King Ahab. 
So Ahab comes, God, sorry, with, with, with not, 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 uh, it starts with King Jehu, the king that, that comes after Ahab. So God told Elijah to anoint Jehu as king. In, in place of Ahab. We see this in 1 Kings 19, verse 15 to 17. Remember, after this whole No Hanon's Bri incident, uh, Jezebel started screaming threats at Elijah and he ran. He ran for his life. He ran and hid away. And eventually God said to him, Right, I'm going to, things are going to change now. And we see in 1 Kings 19, verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king of Assyria. You shall also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Maholah, you shall appoint as prophet in your place. And it shall be whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill, because God is now bringing restoration, and he's dealing decisively with the, um, with the, the, the kingship of Ahab and everything that he had established. Okay? So we follow it on a little bit there. That was 1 Kings 19. When we come into 2 Kings, we see that Jezebel is killed. That's in 2 Kings uh, chapter 9. Uh, in chapter 10, the new king that Elisha, uh, that Elijah appointed, King Jehu, he kills the 70 sons of Ahab. Ahab had already died in battle. And then he carries on further. So this man is now God's appointed man. He's clearly got a heart for the things of God. He goes after the rest of Abel, Ahab's family. And all those who were in close association with him, who were loyal to Ahab, loyal to Jezebel, and therefore loyal to the cause of Baal. And now he's killed all of these people. He's on his way now to Samaria, to, to whatever family and, and um, acquaintances of Ahab's dwell in Samaria. And here's where I'm going to pick up the story again in 2 Kings chapter 10 from verse 15. Now, when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, is your heart right? As my heart is towards your heart? And Jehonadab answered and said, it is. So you basically can understand here. It's the same as, as David said to the mighty men, are you for me or are you against me? There was a major uproar, a major unsettling in the kingdom. And here was the new king. And he was just, this was a friend of his, but he was saying, listen, are you for me or what's going on? Uh, and so he said, yeah, I'm with you. And so Jehu said, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand. And he took him up into the chariot. And then he said to him, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. And I read those words in the midst of everything I'd been reading so far. And I thought, wow, here's a man who, who's got it together. He wants to praise God. He is about taking out Baal. He reminds me a bit of Peter. You know, he's, he's a, bit, um, a bit cocky, perhaps. Come and see my zeal for the Lord. And so they had him ride in his chariot. And when he had come to Samaria, he killed all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed them according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And I'm thinking to myself, this is fantastic, right? So, so this is all King Ahab and his evil influence is being completely purged from the land. Uh, and there's, you know, there's positive change here. But yet just a little bit later in the same chapter, I read these words. Verse 27, then they broke down the sacred pillar of Baal. They tore down the temple of Baal and made it a refuse dump to this day. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal from Israel. And I'm going, yes, that's awesome. That's great. But then verse 29 says, however, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. In other words, there was still idol worship that he practiced. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the 14th generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart. And we see those words again. He, was, he did some stuff for God, but he didn't he take heed to walk in the law of the Lord with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam who made Israel sin. And I was just crestfallen. You know, this is such a contradiction to verse 16. And even though there was zeal, and even though he followed God's instruction, yet he did not follow God with all his heart. And he again continued and got drawn away again into his idolatry. Folks, what this shows us is that we can, we can be zealous about an act of worship. We can be zealous about, you know, obeying a command of God or doing one thing for God. There can be times and seasons in our lives where, where we are serving God and there's great things that God is doing in our hearts while at the same time still harboring other altars that we return to at a later period that are not completely broken down and that in some shape or form, in some times and in some seasons to greater or lesser degrees, still maintain a level of influence in our heart. What do I mean by this? When I say altars, I mean these can be mindsets. They can be attitudes. They can be prejudices. They can be preferences. They can be sin. They can be things that are good, but that are not God, that we know God is not pleased with in the time and season that we are in. They can be undealt with issues, unforgiveness. There can be many different things. But what we see here is those things which remain uncrucified, unbroken down, undealt with, seem to have a way of coming up again and, and bringing and influencing us, drawing us away from the first and the great commandment to love the Lord our God with all our hearts. As I read through the narrative and I continue on and we're going to continue on through these kings, I want to celebrate the kings who did what was right in the sight of God. But the problem is I find a parallel narrative popping up again and again. And this is what I'm really wanting to share with you. So we're going to, when I look at second, we can continue through second Kings chapter 12, verses two and three, there was a king appointed called Jehoash. And verse two of, of second Kings 12 says, Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jeho Jeho Jehoiada, the priest instructed him. So he had a priest instructing him and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Verse three, but the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. You see, Jehoash was responsible for, re he's the guy who redecorated the temple after it had been raided for one of Baal's temples. In other words, somebody they, they took all of the, the ornaments, the gold, the beautiful things out of the temple. And he, came, he restored the temple of God. He had people come in and, and, and get it beautifying the temple again. But despite these acts of worship, despite 
what he did for the kingdom of God or what he did for God and for the temple and for the presence of God, the high places remained intact. There were still areas of influences in, 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 in the, within the nation that he left standing. A little further down the line, we come to Amaziah, 2 Kings 14, verses 3 to 4. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And I want to go, yes, but yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Going on a little further, Azariah, 2 Kings 15, verses 3 to 4. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except, except that the high places were not removed, the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Wow. Is that enough? No. Let's just keep carrying on. And we've got Jotham, 2 Kings 15, 34 to 35. You see, this is what this, 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 when I think of that original commandment that where God said to the nation of Israel in Exodus 20, um, you know, if you do not do this, it's going to be visited to you from generation to generation to generation. It's not like God is going to be punitively doing it. It's, it's the realization that that which we worship will influence the generations that come after us, not just us, but those who come after us. And we see here again, 2 Kings 15, 34 to 35, Jotham. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. We see it again. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. So he did things for God. Yay! But the people were still sacrificing on the high places. They were not removed. Are you getting the gist of what I'm trying to communicate today? I'm looking at my heart and I'm saying, God, you're saying something to me here. And I'm hoping that what I'm communicating to you will, 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 will strike a chord as well. You see, high places are the altars of worship. They're where we make personal sacrifice. You know, they often say that the TV is like an altar. I'm not, I'm not trying to put this on anybody, but it's we, how much time do we sacrifice in front of the TV? How much time do we worship? The opinions of men that come through the news or, or, or the shows and the things that we read. Not all of it's bad or evil in itself. But, um, you know, how much time do we spend there com compared to at the feet of Jesus or in the word of God? Incense that is burned in these places represents worship. It, it represents that which, which has a personal influence over my life, over my thoughts, over my heart. It has to do with the area of lordship. And as long as there was this dual narrative, Judah never saw true peace or blessing. Praise God, eventually a different narrative came through King Hezekiah. And in 2 Kings chapter 18, this is where I'm wanting to pick up the story again. 2 Kings 18 verses 3 to, to the first part of verse 7. Hezekiah, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He remembered, sorry, he not remembered, he removed the high places. He broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces, even the bronze servant that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah. 
nor were there before him. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel. His complete trust was there. In other words, he removed every other altar, every other place that one could trust, where one could cast one's expectation. All his expectation was placed on God. Verse 6, for he held fast to the Lord. Where Solomon, if I go back and I read what Solomon did, Solomon clung to these women in love. When we look at Hezekiah, Hezekiah held fast to the Lord. What are the things that our hearts are holding fast to? What are the things that our hearts are clinging to? Personal opinions, mindsets, actions, sin, whatever it may be, relationships perhaps even, that are not ordained or blessed of God. Hezekiah held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him and, pros and he prospered wherever he went. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. What a beautiful story. And find my heart finds rest as I'm reading this story, because in the man, the king Hezekiah, there's finally leadership in place that demonstrates what what it looks like to worship God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, to have him be the one and the only. And here's the point I want to make. While we often may feel good or content about our acts of worship to God, our faithfulness in attending church, maybe we're good in our quiet times, maybe there's there's other acts of worship where we feel that our, our hearts are satisfied that we are being that we are doing what is right in the sight of the Lord. There may be zeal for our acts of obedience. But despite this, it is our ifs, our ands, and our buts that ultimately undermine what it is that God wants to do in and through our lives. You see, despite all the good stuff, if I still got a I'll obey if it's good for me, if it's convenient if my family is provided for, if, 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 or if we say I'll serve God and my own purposes, or if we're saying something along, you know, I want to follow God, but, you know, this or that or the next thing, there's a problem. There are still altars and places where we are still making sacrifices. And instead of sacrificing our lives, our time, our resources, our lands, that which belongs to us, on the altar of God for his service, we end up sacrificing the plans and purposes of God on our altars for our services, for our purposes, for our plans. And those altars need to be broken down. We're, altars, that incense needs to be thrown out. Those, act, those places and those attitudes of worship that, that place expectation. For lordship, expectation for provision, expectation for anything else, anywhere else, but on God. You see, this the altars that we sacrifice our time and energy on, and the incense of worldly influence that we allow into our lives, war against the purposes and the blessings that God has in store for us. And as I said earlier on, we are in a season of returning, in a season of evaluating our hearts. And this is a this to me is, is has been 
a deep and searching time. And I, I, I still have much prayer to do concerning these things because I want God to show me not only what the altars are in my life, but I want God to give me an intolerance for them. You see, as long as these altars were tolerated, the influence remained. And I believe God wants to cut off influences that draw us away or that hold us in a state of unbelief, keep us in a state of struggling with perhaps our identity and coming into the fullness of God's promises for us. It is time to tear down those sacred pillars of unbelief and remove the high places of worldly thinking and values and priorities and remove the images of these influences from our lives. Now, you may think this is just an Old Testament thing. You may think when Jesus, you know, and, and it came and the Holy Spirit was given that these things all changed. But I want to go back to, to a verses that Pastor Andreas read to us very recently from James chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. And this is from, uh, this is in, the, I'm reading to you from the message. The New King James starts off this verse saying, adulterers and adulteresses. You know, James doesn't mince his words. Eugene Peterson is a little more gentle. He says it this way. He says, folks, you are cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing humble. You see, there's this, this picture of saying, James is saying, guys, there's divisions among you. There's wars. There's all, where do these things come from? It's from seeking other things. It's desiring the pleasures of the flesh. And listen, let's not be, let's not be, um, you know, trivial. The pleasures of the flesh are trivial, are, are, are pleasurable. That's why they're so alluring. And, uh, you know, that's why fasting is really good for us because it helps us keep our flesh in check. But really, it's, for me, this has got to do with, with heart influences. Reading the words of, of Jesus, Matthew 22, 35 to 38, I've already really quoted them. It says this, one of them, a lawyer, asked him the question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? Wanting somehow, I suppose, to justify himself. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God. But I love the way Jesus says it, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Luke adds, with all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. He goes on to say, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, in these is wrapped up all the law and the prophets. You know, as you make this your aim, as we make this our aim, saying, God, I want to love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind. I want to lean on you and trust in you completely, depend on you completely. Place no expectation anywhere else but on you alone. I want to walk in your ways. I want to know your ways. As we make this our aim, folks, I truly believe that God will reveal to us what altars and high places still remain in our hearts and minds. 
either by displacing, give, give, uh, giving us the wisdom to either displace them or the boldness and the grace that we need to tear them down, to bring them captive to the obedience of Christ Jesus. And I want to say to you that as you deal with these areas in your heart and mind, you will begin to see a whole new dimension of God's blessing, of his, of his grace that enables him, his empowering grace, as well as, his, as, as his, his anointing and his spirit at work in and through your life. So I want to say to you, believers, I believe it's Hezekiah time. Time to tear down the altars. Time to break down the pillars. I want to say to you, it is Elijah time. It's time to, to deal with whatever other altars are there. And, you know, in your own heart and mind, just say to yourself, no, Chanos, but I, we are going to take these things down. We're going to burn them. We are going to, I'm going to deal with all of these areas in my heart because these things are keeping me from the best that God has for me from what he wants to do in my life, but also from what he wants to do through my life. Now, for me, I don't hear this as a very heavy word. I want to share with you something that somebody said to me a, a few weeks ago in PE that brought such liberty and freedom to my heart, and I pray that as I do so, it will do the same for you. There was a lady who was praying for, for Helen and I, a lady and a gentleman, and she had this vision. And I won't share the whole thing with you because some of it's quite personal. But at one point, she, the, the picture was of a bird that, um, that, that, that was in a cage and the cage door was open. And she said, God wants you to fly higher so that you can see more of the sun. You see, many of us have cages of thought. These are kinds of the things that I'm thinking of that keep us in a place. And although the door is open because Jesus has paid the price for it. We remain within the cages of our thinking, within the cages of our sin, within the cages of our level of obedience and our level of revelation, within the level of our faith. And the beautiful thing about that word, what just liberated my heart so much is God just wants us to get out of that place and to look to the sun. Jesus is the sun. And the more we see of him, the more we focus on him and pursue him, these other things begin to, to dissipate. They begin to fall away. They begin to be revealed. I want to say to you tonight, if anything that I've shared has struck a chord in your heart, maybe you recognize that there's areas of compromise. Maybe you recognize that there are undealt with sins, undealt with attitudes. Maybe you recognize there's unforgiveness in your heart. Now is the time and the season to tear those things down, to do business with God, to do business in your heart. It's springtime and here in South Africa and in the Southern Hemisphere. It's time for a spring clean of our hearts to take out the influences that God is pointing out to you. Avoid the temptation of compromising. Avoid the temptation of procrastination saying, I'll deal with that later. It will hamper your later and later will never come. Now's the time. Now's the season, folks. Amen. And so I want to pray over you as we as I, as I round out this word before we, we, we give time for comments and questions. My God and Father, I want to thank you that your call to repentance is always a call back to your heart. It is always a call made in love for love. And I want to thank you for the greatness of your love for us. Lord, we acknowledge that 
in the same as we see the, 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 the narrative of the nation of Israel and your people throughout the generations, we acknowledge and we see in ourselves, Lord God, a propensity to be distracted, a desire or a propensity to compromise for comfort, a desire and a propensity to, to look to other opinions and other ways of thinking that are contrary to yours, Father God. Sometimes we explain away through human reasoning why it is that we don't see the promises of God coming to fruition. And those explanations, Lord God, may even have bedded down deep within our hearts. Father, I want to pray over my heart and all of our hearts as we've heard this word today, that you would help us recognize the altars that we have allowed to be erected or have personally erected in our hearts and our minds and our lives that are not of you, that cause us to worship and be influenced by this world or by our enemy, that fall short, Father God, of your plans and purposes for us. Lord God, we want to be the people who truly love you and worship you and serve you with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul and with all our strength, Lord God. We want to love you as our one and only true God and have no room for any other influences and cast aside all manner of compromise. And for this, God, we need your grace. I pray today that you would grant us repentance, that you would grant us eyes to see that which in our lives keeps us from entering into the fullness of your promises and into a deeper experience of intimacy with you. Lord God, help us. Give us the grace we need to tear those things out, to cut them out, to deal decisively with our flesh, Lord God, that you truly may be glorified in us and through our lives. Just reminded as I'm praying of the verse in Galatians, where Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so, Father God, I want to pray that you would help us nail to your cross, Lord Jesus, all that which calls us away and draws us away from you and from your plans and your purposes for our lives. Help us to engage with you in a meaningful way in this season. And I pray for breakthrough. I pray that strongholds will be broken. I pray that liberty will be granted. I pray for the year of Jubilee to come into manifestation where those who are captive will be set free, captive to habitual sin, captive to hurtful and wrongful mindsets, captive to wrong self-image and self-awareness and identity struggles, Lord God, and anxieties. God, I pray for liberty and freedom that we may come into the, the fullness of your plans, the fullness of your word, Lord God, that we may do what is right in the sight of the Lord with our whole heart, no compromise. Bring us to this place, I pray, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For additional resources or more information about this ministry, come and visit us at alphaomegaint.org.za.